Thank you, guys. Well, I'm the Steve that they were praying for, and it's good to be up here to share God's Word with you this morning. I hope you will have kept your uh, Bibles open uh, to Mark chapter 12, uh, as that's obviously where we'll be uh, this morning. In the early 1980s, a journalist was informed of what he thought was the most terrible news he could possibly receive. Was it illness? Was it some kind of natural disaster that was coming? What could have caused him so much grief and consternation? It was that his wife had made the decision to become a follower of Jesus. She'd become a Christian. How could this happen, he wondered. How could the intelligent woman that he had married embrace something based in mythology, legend, make-believe, wishful thinking that only weak-minded people ran to? And in his hostility and resentment over, as he put it, another man in his marriage, he set out to ask the questions that would discredit and destroy his wife's faith. He employed all the skills of his investigative journalism, expecting to be successful in his task, as he said, in about a weekend. But things took an unexpected turn. All his questions meant to bring down her faith in Jesus led him to the same place at the feet of Jesus. Lee Strobel ended up publishing his unexpected journey from atheist to Christian believer in the book, The Case for Christ. And his experience shows us something, something to consider. That there are times when those who come questioning Jesus find that the result is not what they anticipated. As we have moved our way through the book of Mark, we have been pointing out uh, what is written about Jesus in the early chapters, this question that is raised about Jesus, about his identity, the recurring question in some form that is being asked of, who is this? As he's doing the things he's doing and teaching the things that he is. And along the way, he has been uh, progressively revealing his identity and establishing his authority as king over God's kingdom. And this inevitably challenged the power base of the political and theological elites who by as early as chapter 3 are conspiring to kill him. So the tension has built up to a climax as we have entered the chapters of Mark's gospel that focus on what took place in Jerusalem in the last days of Jesus' life. In chapter 11, Jesus had made his most dramatic and public revelation concerning his identity and his authority by entering Jerusalem amid the fanfare of a king's coronation. He came in riding on a colt, and the people were singing his praises, and he proceeded in this manner from the city gate to the temple, the epicenter of spiritual life, the spiritual life of Israel, as well as the power of the religious elites. And as he arrived, if you remember last week, he looked around, he took things in, and he returned the next day, condemning what he found, and he asserted his authority by driving out those who had corrupted it. What follows in our passage today, what we have read, is a series of tents and public challenges to Jesus' claim of authority, intended to diminish and to destroy him. But as we will discover, these challenges and traps didn't produce the anticipated result. They actually had the opposite impact. 
highlighting and enhancing Jesus' authority while simultaneously emphasizing the lack and deficiency of those challenging him. And we're going to see that the flow of this passage revolves around a series of questions. Three posted to Jesus and one posed by Jesus himself. And as we'll read them, if you haven't picked up it on already, um, Jesus' inherent authority just permeates all these exchanges. And his words not only rebut his challengers, but they reveal spiritual realities that all of us here today need to come to terms with. And so we need the Lord's help with that. So let's just pause for a word of prayer. Father, would you help us this morning, uh, not just to see and understand words on a page, but may our hearts and our minds and our wills be receptive to what you have to say to us this morning through your word. Help us to see Jesus, we pray, for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. So there are these four questions. And the first one we find in verse 13 is around the whole issue of paying taxes to Caesar. Look at verse 13 where it says, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So Jesus is approached by this unexpected coalition of people, namely representatives of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And I say unexpected because other than their contempt for Jesus and their desire to see his demise, they shared veritably nothing in common. One was a group of religious purists, the other was politically connected and more power, power brokers. But this contingent is sent by the Sanhedrin, the, the leading religious rulers of the country, to lay a trap for him from which they were sure Jesus would not be able to escape. And there's some irony in their approach to Jesus before the trap intended to catch him in his words is sprung. Look as it continues, and it says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. Because you may pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now these words are ironic because their, their flattery is evidently insincere. Otherwise, they would be following Jesus if they really thought this. They wouldn't be challenging him. And it's ironic as well because this was an accurate depiction of Jesus. If it was, which it was, he would in no way be influenced by their words of flattery. So what's the point? But nonetheless, they finally get to the crux of the issue that they intended to trap him with. Here comes the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? The classic gotcha, yes or no, answer the question. Gotcha, Jesus. You upstart, illegitimate, uncredentialed carpenter from Nazareth. You know, you can just sense the contempt in their voice. They were probably thinking something along those lines because they thought they had finally put together a question that trapped Jesus between a rock and a hard place. The rock of religious controversy and the hard reality of imperial Rome. You see, in their minds, they thought Jesus couldn't survive this no matter how he answered it. See, if he answered yes to paying the unpopular imperial tax, he would be seen by the masses as a collaborator with the occupying Romans, and his popularity would go, if he said no to paying the imperial tax, he would be labeled an insurrectionist by the imperial authorities and dealt with accordingly, and once again, they're through with him. This time, they had him. 
or so they thought. Jesus knew their hypocrisy, the passage continues, and he says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? As Gareth had him on the screens earlier. So having obtained a borrowed coin, Jesus proceeds with a powerful object lesson. The coin in question had on its, on its face the image of Caesar and an inscription on it that it was minted and circulated by his authority for use within his realm. So Jesus says, the coin is Caesar's, so give it to him. Imperial Rome, satisfied. They thought they had him. But Jesus is not through answering the challenge as he makes a further statement. Give to God what is God's. Now we need to be clear about what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying here. Jesus is saying that rulers and governments have a legitimate, though limited, authority in this world. And that taxation is an expression of that. I know America and Britain had a little tension on that back in my country a little while ago, 1700s, but we're not going to go there. Um, but in his answer, Jesus is also clearly asserting that government authority is not ultimate. Government has authority, but it is not ultimate. Ultimate authority lies with God. And he is above presidents, princes, and parliaments. Yes, give Caesar his tax. Give him his coin. But not the worship he was demanding. Caesar is not Lord. Never give to him what is only due to God. Caesar's image may be on the coin, but as Gareth said, the creator's image is born on every human being, on you and me. We are rightfully his. You see, the challenge posed to Jesus ostensibly was about taxes, but it raised the question of allegiance. They tried to trap Jesus and see whether he would side with the nationalistic dreams of Israel or the imperialistic power of Rome. And Jesus' unexpected answer requires all of us to consider to whom our ultimate allegiance belongs. Walking with Jesus as a part of his kingdom means that our ultimate and primary allegiance must be to him. Allegiance to him must define our walk in this world. And as we walk in this world... There will always be the danger of getting caught up in an agenda that may be important, but not really a matter of allegiance to Jesus. There will always be non-essential issues on which we may disagree as Christians, particularly in terms of politics and government and economics. Think Brexit, think COVID, think the list goes on. And allegiance to Jesus and his agenda... His agenda of people coming into his kingdom through faith in him must supersede any commitment to our own agendas and causes, whatever they may be, our happiness, our security, our success. So they asked a question on taxes and they got more than they bargained for. Second question, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? So having left everyone amazed with his response to the challenge posed by the Pharisees and Herodians, Jesus is confronted by another challenge from a different corner. 
Look at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So first, some background on this group, just to ensure that we are all tracking together, right? The Sadducees were from the wealthy, aristocratic, ruling class of Israel. They were well-connected, and they were associated with the priesthood. And in this light, as you might expect, they held a strong influence over the religious and political life of Israel through the temple. Their more conservative theological convictions ran contrary to the more popular and progressive Pharisees on a number of points. And there was this intense rivalry and contention between the two groups. The Sadducees were conservative, and and this is what I mean by that. Not thinking in terms of current political thought, but more in the sense of they only accepted the first five books, the Torah, of the Old Testament as authoritative. Whereas the Pharisees were more progressive in that they went to the Psalms and the prophets and oral tradition. And one belief on which they diverged because of this was the resurrection and the rising of the body after dead. So the Pharisees affirmed this belief, but the Sadducees did not, asserting that it could not be clearly taught in what Moses had written. And this is why they were so sad, you see. You knew I was going to say it. If you were in Sunday school, you knew I had to say it. And now you won't forget it, right? That is why they were so sad. So witnessing how Jesus had dispatched the rival Pharisees on paying taxes to Caesar, the the Sadducees saw a golden opportunity to discredit both Jesus and pile on their adversaries on this issue of resurrection. So they come to Jesus with a question that probably seems very foreign to us. Almost a riddle. Look at verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So let's just stop here. (laughs) This seems probably strange to us and explains what he's referring to. They're referencing what is called leveret marriage. Lever being Latin for husband's brother, if you do the research. So leveret marriage was a custom in ancient Israel, whereby family property and inheritance would be preserved and protected if a man died without having children. So the guidance for this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and its practice is actually central to the story of Ruth that we're looking at during our evening sermon series. I encourage you to come tonight for that. Um, but leveret marriage wasn't intended to be something that was promiscuous or uh, somehow permissive or an opportunity for polygamy. It was meant to be a protective custom reflected of the cultural realities at that time. And basically what it amounted to was if a man died having no children, his brother was obligated to marry his widow. I encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's actually quite humorous to discover what would happen if a man refused to do this. There's your homework. Go try it out. So a widow would have been quite vulnerable in the ancient world. And to raise up offspring who would receive their dead father's inheritance was seen as this obligation. So what the Sadducees are attempting to do with this little riddle is to use leveret marriage as a means to reduce belief in a resurrection to something that sounds absurd. And then point G, paint Jesus with the same brush, so, so to speak. So look at verse 20. Here's, 
Here's their little riddle. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Here it comes. They're so ready for this. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. And again, they obviously felt confident in Jesus' inability to respond adequately to their little riddle. And thus, their ability to rule out belief in any kind of resurrection. A snarky condescension seems a little bit implied here as well. When they finally arrive at this question, doesn't it? They're on their turf. This is a question about the Torah, their stock and trade, their, the, the temple, again, their turf. And in their minds, there was no way, just using simple logic and reason, that Jesus could survive their challenge to him. But it is likely if there was a smug expression on their face that it quickly began to evaporate and dissipate as Jesus opened his mouth to reply. Verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Now, it is hard to soften the blow these words would have inflicted upon the Sadducees. They were the experts. This was their center of power. These were the religious elite of Israel, meant to be experts in all things concerning God, publicly characterized on their turf as ignorant and inept. Now in contrast, hear the strength and the authority in Jesus' voice. Their question is, how could the dead be raised? Jesus' answer, when the dead are raised. They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. A little extra side note, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either, but that's another line. The Sadducees thought simple reason and logic would win the day for them, but their conclusion was based on a faulty assumption. What was their faulty assumption? Their question, as uh, James Edwards, who's written a commentary on the book of, of Mark, says their question is framed on this assumption, that the world to come is essentially an extension of our earthly conditions, including the married state, although under more glorious conditions. But resurrection life is a completely different kind of existence. Not simply a continuation of this life. In fact, Jesus' response makes clear marriage isn't even a factor to be considered when we are talking about the resurrection. Jesus isn't saying people will become angels. That's a, a misnomer. But rather, they'll be like the angels in regards to marriage. Marriage will be an obsolete institution when God in his power brings this world to a close and brings about a new heavens and a new earth. They didn't know the scriptures. And they didn't know the power of God, appreciate the power of God to do this. And so he, he says marriage isn't even a part of resurrection life. And he goes on to establish the fact of the resurrection from a starting point that they would accept 
the book of Exodus, when he says, as he continues, now about the dead rising in verse 26. Have you not read in the book of Moses, so the Torah, that must have sounded really great to them. Haven't you read this? Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Haven't you read what the Lord said to Moses? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. These were individuals who had long been dead at the time of the burning bush. He did not say at that burning bush, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. God's covenant promises made through these individuals can only fully come to pass if they are alive as beneficiaries. And so Jesus' argument is grounded in the faithfulness of God. To these three men who received his promises as recorded in the scriptures. And even though they were dead, there is the hope of resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, while the first challenge to Jesus raised the question of ultimate allegiance, the Sadducees' question raises the issue of where ultimately one's hope rests. They obviously had none. In Jesus' words, they were both badly mistaken because they had ignored the scriptures and had failed to grasp the power of God to bring about realities beyond their little minds imagining. What about us? Hope is becoming a commodity that is in rare supply, especially in the Western world. People have been putting hope in things that have been found wanting and unable to bring ultimate meaning to our lives. But true and lasting hope is only found in the scriptures and in the power of God to redeem and renew what we all know is a broken world. It's why the Messiah came. This world is broken. And he will usher in eventually a world, the world we all long and desire for. And people have been putting hope in all kinds of things that have been found wanting. And it is only found in Jesus. Whose ultimate response to the Sadducees is not his words in this passage, but the tomb that lay empty after he rose from it. That is where hope can be found. And do you know that hope? Because you can, through knowing and walking with Jesus. Second question, a tricky question about marriage, turns into a question about one's ultimate hope. Question number three, which is the most important commandment? One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. This is in verse 28. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So with the introduction of this scribe, it's like they've been lined up on the runway. Just here, here's one question, here's another question, here's another question. They're they're taking off, coming at Jesus. But this scribe, the, the tone of conversation turns a bit more friendly and cordial. And while he's still testing Jesus, 
this expert in the law and its interpretation by comparison seems much more sincere, doesn't he? Now, it was common practice for the religious elite of Jesus' day both to debate the weight, the significance of scriptural commands as well as to try to distill them down into one all-encompassing summary. Other rabbis before and after the time of Jesus had encapsulated the commands of Scripture uh, in this way that the scribe is asking Jesus to do. And so Jesus obliges him. Verse 29, the most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And with all your strength. <clears throat> the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus' response to this question comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. Known as the Shema in Judaism. From the word hear. So hear sounds like Shema in Hebrew. And it was recited daily by observant Jews as a reminder of the necessity of responding to God in love with every aspect of one's being. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Every faculty was to be directed and devoted to a relationship of love with the Creator and Lord of all. But Jesus gives this scribe more than he asked for by adding love for neighbor as found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So his reply takes these two commandments and fuses them together, but doesn't confuse them into one. Love of God takes precedence over and fuels love for neighbor, but love for neighbor gives definition and, and feet, if you will, to what it means to love God in this world. And so this is Jesus' answer in this way. The scribe responds in verse 32. Well said, teacher. Hard to know whether that's condescending again or not, but you, know, you did good. Nice, nice job. Um, he says, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So while the scribe's response is complimentary and affirming to the reply of Jesus that he had given to his question, Jesus' next words to him should land on us in a very sobering way. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. You think the scribe was expecting that statement? Here he had just given this amazing answer of the understanding of the teaching of the Old Testament. This man was so close. He understood so much and had a genuine grasp on significant spiritual truth. What could he possibly be missing that was preventing him from actually being a part of the kingdom of heaven? The answer lies in the question... Everyone is asking about Jesus. Who is this? See, Jesus' words to the scribe make it clear that subscribing to a particular set of truths about the kingdom 
is not the same as recognizing and submitting to the authority of the king. That is what made the scribe close, ever so close, but still on the outside. And it is what makes many people in the same position and peril today. If their status doesn't change. And how does that status change? Well, what has Jesus been saying all along from the earliest chapters of the Gospel of Mark? By repenting and reorienting their lives around who Jesus really is. Remember what Jesus began when he first started preaching. The kingdom of God has come near with the arrival of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means to reorient, to, to turn around, to, to turn to Jesus as who he is, the king who's come. And again, note the authority of Jesus making this assessment of who is in his kingdom, and who is out. The authority is amazing. And just as the previous questions raised ultimate issues of allegiance and where our hope rests, here Jesus' reply draws attention to our heart's devotion. We do not bring Jesus into our lives as part of an overall picture we create to make life toward our ends work. He is not something we sample, nor can we be selective in what it means to be his follower. We are to be devoted to him in love, in response to the love demonstrated toward us by him. It is an undivided and devoted love that is meant to characterize our relationship with God, and that love is expressed in love toward other people, no matter who they are. Other people are objects of the Father's love. A love that is to be made visible and tangible by our actions. And so may the Lord search our hearts and move us to live in this way in undivided devotion to him. <clears throat> but returning to Mark chapter 12, because we need to finish. <laughs> not, everyone, um, not how everyone responded to all this. Verse 34. So they've been lining up to take a whack at him. Now in verse 34. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They realized this is futile. They had had enough. But Jesus was just getting started. As they abandoned their questioning of Jesus, Jesus starts posing his own questions to them. His question, the fourth question. Whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? Look at verse 35. While he was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus' question is from Psalm 110, which the scribes had rightly concluded was making reference to the Messiah as a descendant of David. He would come from David's lineage. And this was a coronation psalm. That meant it was used to highlight the authority of the kings of Israel as God invites the king to sit at his right hand, that place of honor and authority. Now the word in Hebrew, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai. And uh, strict Jews would not use, speak the word Yahweh. When they find the covenantal name of God in the Old Testament, they will say, replace it with Adonai. Right? And so Jesus' question is this. How can David refer to one of his descendants as my Lord? 
Adonai and that individual merely be a human being. The Messiah must be superior to him. He is David's physical descendant, but he also has to be more than that. Whose son is he? And for the answer, we must recall the parable of the vineyard that we looked at last week that prompted Jesus' opponents to come to him, questioning him the way they are. Remember, Jesus, if you were with us last week, told a story about wicked tenant farmers who had usurped their authority, the authority of the owner, rather, seeking to seize the vineyard for themselves. And the owner sends his servants to seek the fruit that is rightfully his, only to have these servants mistreated and killed by the tenants. And finally, he sends his beloved son, whom they murder, and the owner comes in judgment to remove them. The priests and teachers of the law knew that Jesus had spoken the parable about them. They were these wicked tenants. But Jesus now is highlighting another detail for them and the listening crowd that's gathered around. The identity of the son. The messianic son of David is superior because he is also the divine son of the father. And all of their questions meant to discredit and destroy Jesus had instead been answered by Jesus in a way that enhanced and highlighted his authority. Now this question to them directs attention to the basis of his authority. He is God's beloved son. They should have respected and listened to him and said they, they sought to discredit and to destroy him. And so Jesus warns the crowds, who it says now who had been listening with delight. He warns them about the true character of the teachers of the law. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. In his final public exchange with them, because that's what this is, Jesus discredits and destroys the authority of the scribes and the teachers of the law. They basked and delighted in the pomp and privilege their position provided for them. But they weren't just shallow. They were predators who for personal gain destroyed the most at-risk and vulnerable people in that society. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Remember the servants sent by the owner of the vineyard, the, the prophets sent by the Lord? Listen to one of them, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What about that commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself? <laughs> this is a scathing indictment of the religious elite made by Jesus at the epicenter of their power and authority, the temple. And can you sense the heat of the moment? In my imagination, I can hear the strength and authority in Jesus' voice in this climactic proclamation, these men, these men will be punished most severely. And as we conclude, Mark has this iconic contrast. 
Look at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Compare the power-hungry, self-seeking, widow-devouring experts in the law to this powerless, self-sacrificing widow who devoured her own minimal resources in love and worship to God. This anonymous woman has served as a lasting and vivid picture of loving God with the totality of one's beings, being, and abilities. Did you notice she put in all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This widow had an undivided devotion to the Lord, an unrelenting hope in him and an unreserved commitment of devotion to him in allegiance. Could the same be said of each of us this morning? <clears throat> in our passage, Jesus had turned the questions intended to discredit and destroy him into a means to highlight his own authority based on his true identity. A politically charged question on taxes turned into a challenge of where our ultimate allegiance lies. A question pertaining to a doctrinal debate, doctrinal debate turned into a question of the ultimate source of our hope. And a question about the greatest commandment pointed us to an undivided devotion to God expressed in love to others. But the answer to Jesus' question that he posed was the one they really needed answered, the climax. They had been addressing Miss teacher. Did you notice that? But the one they refused to learn from is much more than that. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, God's own son, and they resented and resisted his authority when they should have been bowing to it in faith. So let's go back to where we began. There are times when those who come questioning Jesus find that the result is not what they anticipated. Don't find yourself in that position. Of those who question Jesus, either openly resentful and, resent and resistant, or so close to, and still not yet entering the kingdom of God. King Jesus still warmly welcomes those who recognize his authority, repent, and reorient their lives to him in faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we had so much to cover this morning. This amazing passage speaking to your authority and who you are. I pray now that as we conclude in worship, that it would not be lost on us, that your spirit would take your word, which you have inspired, and plant it deep within our hearts, that you would cause us, Lord, to come to terms with the issues raised in this passage of where our hope rests, who our allegiance is to, is our heart truly directed in undivided devotion to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that those who recognize their lack in these things 
instead of being resentful and resistant, can come to you in repentance and humility and faith and find pardon and find freedom. And so, Lord, it's in that way that we come to you this morning. And as we prepare to sing this next song, I just want to say these few words from it as our prayer as we conclude this prayer. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Amen.